You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. A'udhu billahi minash rajim bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah the most gracious ever merciful. Dear listeners, good morning and welcome to the breakfast show at the Voice of Islam Radio. I am your host Mubarak Mini and I am joined here today with my co-host Daniel Ahmed. Brother Daniel, assalamu alaikum and good morning. Wa alaikum assalam and good morning to you as well. Alhamdulillah we've had a uh, good start to the to the day. Um how do you feel how was how was how was your trip into the studio today? Yeah, um, uh, while I, I was coming here it was pretty dark outside and um, cloudy. Yeah, this is still cloudy. It's still cloudy. You can see through the window. Yeah. Um Well with with with, with that do you have uh, the weather for today and if you could um Yeah, sure. So uh, regarding the weather for today and for the coming days. So for today it will be windy um as we are seeing now for the past few days and a blustery day with uh, spells of heavy and persistent rain drifting across much of the UK. However, the southeast and the far south will be drier with a few brighter breaks. And tonight it will be it will continue uh, windy for much of the UK. A uh, cloud will push in from from the west and spells of heavy rain will begin to move in for much of the north and west. The southeast will again um, escape drier. and for tomorrow on wednesday it will see a band of heavy persistent rain with strong winds spread eastwards throughout the day leaving sunny spells and showers in it uh, in its wake uh, these will be frequent in the northwest and an outlook for thursday to saturday and thursday will be less windy with sunshine periods um however the far uh, the far north will continue to see spells of heavy rain whilst um the far south will have some heavy showers possibly the thundery at times breezy on friday with scattered sh- heavy showers um pushing into western uh, areas uh, drier with sunny uh, sunshine elsewhere saturday will turn dry and sunnier uh, but cloud and rain moving by the evening um that's an outlook for the coming day so it looks as like we got we got to be ready with our um yeah. what what proof jackets windproof uh, jackets as i came with the umbrella as well so yeah so everybody needs to be prepared with the umbrellas yeah, as sure. well at the same time Um so today dear listeners we have um three interesting uh, segments which we will uh we'll try to cover as much as we can uh, to the best of our ability. Uh segment 1 which will start from around 7:25 7:30 is a new blasphemy law Danish government to propose criminalization of of improper treatment of significant religious objects. followed by segment 2 from around after the 8 am news childhood cancer awareness month and then segment 3 which will start from around half 8 is about uh typhoon doxuri and what we can learn so do stay with us stay tuned um you are more than welcome to call in 
the number is 020-86-877878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK and we can have a conversation and we can hear your thoughts on these segments as well. Today the newspaper headlines, um, read newspaper headlines from the BBC News. Fifth brand allegation and Stam's Brexit pledge. A number of a number of papers led with the news that police have received a report of an alleged sexual assault in 2003 following media allegations against comedian and actor Russell Brand. The Met confirmed on Monday it had received a report though did not name Brand or announce a formal investigation. The claim is separate to initial allegations by four women that Brand assaulted them between 2006 and 2013. The Daily Mirror says Brand, who has strongly denied any wrongdoing, now faces a police probe. Mm-hmm. The matter notes that um, at the times of the, the alleged assault in 2003, Brand was rising stand-up uh, star who had finished treatment for drink and drug addiction, but that within a year he had shot to fame. The Times says the fifth woman went to police just hours after the original claims were first published by the Times and the Sunday Times and Channel 4's dispatches, and that police have spoken to the journalists involved in the investigation to make sure that anyone who believes they were the victim of a sexual assault, no matter how long ago, is aware of how to report it. The allegations have led promoters to cancel the last three dates of Brand's tour of live shows, the iReports. The paper says that the cancellations came after a food bank and a drug addiction charity severed ties with Brand and his book publisher paused all future releases. The Sun's headline asks, how many more? The paper says it understands that more alleged victims are set to come forward to talk to police. Mm -hmm. The Met has warned it will take years to root out rogue officers in London, according to The Guardian. The paper says Britain's biggest force has revealed that 2,201 officers are suspended and 860 are on restricted duties. It quotes... Um, Deputy uh, Deputy Assistant Commissioner uh, Stuart Gundy um, says saying a paradox in the process meant the harder we work, the more in energy we put into identifying those who shouldn't be in policing. The more difficult cases, the more difficult stories will become public, and rightly so. The Daily Mail leads with comments by Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer that his party would seek a much better Brexit deal with the EU if Labour wins the next general election. The paper quotes Tory MP David Jones saying Sir Keir appeared to want to unpick Brexit and says the pledge is proof you can't trust Starmer on the issue. Mm-hmm. Ministers are considering the introduction of a minimum service level that would force doctors to work during uh, strikes, the Daily Telegraph reports. Uh, It follows a series of walkouts by health service staff in recent months and ahead of a two-day strike by consultants that begins on Tuesday. The paper quotes Health Secretary Steve Barclay saying that 
the new measures are necessary in the face of ongoing and escalating strike action. The Daily Express leads with its own campaign calling on ministers to pledge that the triple lock on pensions, which guarantees that pensions will rise in line with whatever is highest out of wages, inflation or 2.5%, will be honoured next year. It says its petition on the issue has reached 190,000 signatures. Mm-hmm. And the Daily Star tells readers that if you want your kids to grow tall, you will need to show them a bit of love. The paper says scientists have found that a loving family is just as important for growth as a healthy diet for good genes. A number of papers led with the news that police have received a report of an alleged sexual assault in 2003 following media allegations against comedian and actor Russell Brand. The Times says a fifth accuser went to police just hours after the Times and the Sunday Times and Channel 4's dispatches first reported that Brand had been accused of sexual assault by four other women. The Sun's headline asks how many more. The paper says it understands that more alleged victims are set to come forward to talk to police. Brand has strongly denied any wrongdoing. The Guardian leads with a warning from the Metropolitan Police that it will take years to root out rogue officers. The paper reports that figures from the force show some 201 officers are currently suspended while around 860 are on restricted duties. It says a soul-searching overall of culture and standards promoted by recent scandals involving serving officers has accelerated sackings with 100 dismissals for gross misconduct in the past 12 months. The Daily Telegraph says doctors could be forced to work during strikes under plans to protect patients during successive walkouts. It says ministers are proposing the introduction of minimum service level, regulations which would guarantee a defined level of staffing. The Health Secretary Steve Barclay has told the paper that the dangers posed by what he calls the relentless and escalating actions of the British Medical Association meant that the steps were necessary. Consultants began two days of strikes on Tuesday with junior of doctors also walking out on Wednesday. For the Daily Mail, a pledge by the Labour leader to get a better deal from the EU if he becomes Prime Minister is, in the words of its headline, proof you can't trust Starmer on Brexit. Sarkia has spoken about a closer trading relationship with the EU. The Mail says Conservative MPs are warning that he will surrender Britain's sovereignty and take it back to square one. The Daily Express says the number of people who have signed its petition calling on the government to preserve the triple lock on pensions has reached 190,000 and counting, it says. The paper says polling shows that half the nation supports keeping the measure, which guarantees that pensions rise in line with wages, inflation or 2.5%, whichever is greatest but that the pensions minister, Laura Trott, has refused to confirm whether pensions will go up next year as much as expected. And the, Daily, and the Daily Telegraph, The Sun 
and the Express all feature pictures of the Princess of Wales laughing as she tries on a life jacket at the Royal Naval Air Station in Somerset. She pulled the jacket's cord and the telegraph says she was taken she was aback she was taken aback by how quickly it inflated. Daniel, after these main headlines, um I, I know that there was some news article or there was something that you wanted to share with the listeners for today as well. Yeah, as um, uh, you know, uh, our regular listeners um, must know that uh, His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmad, he was in on his uh, two weeks, almost two weeks um, tour to Germany, mm-hmm. uh, where he inaugurated five new mosques uh, there. So um, it's uh, regarding that and uh, Germany, uh, an article. Um, and uh, the article goes like this that the renowned german philosopher uh, friedrich uh, nietzsche uh, proclaimed god is dead in 1882 initiating a discourse that has since influenced various aspects of thought and culture while this claim had had a significant impact especially in uh, nietzsche homes of germany it also led to a variety of interpretations and discussions on the role of faith in society in 2012 an article in the guardian referred to germany as the most godless place on earth uh, so the the article or the uh, um article in the guardian referring to germany as the most godless place on earth highlighting the lasting influence of Nietzsche's ideas on the topic of atheism, secularism, skepticism, liberalism, and just about all the other isms you can think of have been fast on the rise, uh, with religion sadly on the verge of becoming outdated. How ironic is it then that uh, Islam Ahmadiyat is spreading through, through this land, um uh, much faster than ever with most being built in abundance the recent tour of hazrat uh, his holiness the hazrat mirza masroor ahmed bears the testimony to this as in in two weeks alone five grand mosques have been opened and inaugurated in five different towns and these mosques opening in the you know um the most godless place on earth um is nothing short of a miracle mm. and um you know it also you know bears testimony of the one of the prophecies of um of the um uh, of the founder of md muslim community hazrat uh, mirza ulama ahmed qadiani and the the prophecy is like that that i shall cause thy message to reach the corners of the earth mm. and um he was born in a in a small town in india a very small town no one knows that town um and uh, spreading that message from that town uh, like 100 years ago where we were you know compared to today's era the means of um spreading um your voice um in that era 100 years ago was much tougher than to this age so um, a man you know stood uh, in that era you know from a small town and uh, his prophecy was that i uh, that your message will be reached to the corners of the mm. earth and now we are you know, know we are see- seeing how it is yeah. happening and how 
the md muslim uh, community is over 200 countries in the world and how is continuing and how we uh, people are joining um this the, the sect of true islam as well yeah sure and you know the mere purpose of building mosque as uh, his holiness has also mentioned in his various sermons as well that the whole purpose is to you know spread uh, the unity and peace hmm. and um, we should bear this in our minds as well and uh, this is also for the listeners as well if you who doesn't know that you know there are some people who are you know kind of terrified by Uh, by when they listen that there is a mosque being built so for them um he, uh, as as being a muslim yeah it is our duty to tell them that you know the the whole purpose of building mosque uh, is you know is to spread unity and peace among the society and uh, to bring the yeah human uh, fellow beings uh, near to god as yeah. well yeah and and obviously mosques are a place of worship for muslims yep. but our doors are especially to, for our community doors mosques are always open for anyone who wishes to come just to seek knowledge to make some friendship or however we you know the community hosts different types of open days yeah. um different types of events for our neighbors for friends um to come and visit the mosque as well and 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 to to understand more about Islam as well. Yeah. Um so that door is always open if anyone is ever interested uh do reach out and 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 you will be wherever you are in 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 the country up or down or even in the world um many mosques around the world and and uh, the doors are will are always open and they will always remain open as well. Yeah. Um here we'll take a short break and once we come back we'll head into the first segment. So dear listeners Um do stay with us and uh do join us after a quick break. Allahu akbar Allahu akbar أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدا listening to the voice of islam radio broadcasting on dab and via the internet 24 hours a day writings of the promised messiah alayhi salam on one occasion this humble one saw in a state of vision surah al-fatiha written on a piece of paper which was in my hand and the writing was so beautiful and attractive as if the paper on which it was written was loaded with soft rose petals beyond count as i recited the verses of the surah many of these rose petals flew upwards producing a sweet musical sound the flowers were very delicate 
large, beautiful, fresh and full of fragrance. As they ascended, my heart and mind were perfumed with their fragrance, and I felt so intoxicated that the delight that I had experienced turned my heart completely away from the world and all that is in it. This vision indicates that the rose has a special spiritual affinity with Surah Al-Fatiha. Writings of the Promised Messiah He is wonderfully omnipotent and marvellous are his holy powers. While on the one hand, he allows ignorant opponents to attack his friends like dogs, on the other hand, he commands the angels to serve them. In the same way, when his wrath comes upon the world and his anger surges against the wrongdoers, God watches over and protects his chosen ones. Were it not so, the entire mission of the people of God would end in disarray and no one would be able to recognize them. His powers are infinite, but they are revealed to people in proportion to their belief. Those who are blessed with certainty and love and sever all ties for him and have broken free from selfish habits, it is for their sake that miracles are shown. God does what he wills, but he chooses to demonstrate his miraculous powers only to those who break from their ill habits for his sake. In this day and age, there are very few people who know him and believe in his extraordinary powers. Our God is a very loyal God, and for those who remain loyal to him, he shows wonderful works. The world wishes to tear them to pieces and to eat them up, and every enemy grinds his teeth on them, but he who is their friend saves them from every danger and brings them out triumphant on every field. How fortunate then is he who does not let his hold go of such a God. To him we render our faith, and it is him we have recognized. Of all the world, he alone is the God who has sent down his revelation on me, who for me has shown powerful signs, who has sent me down as the promised Messiah for this age. There is no God except he, in heaven nor on earth. Verily I tell you truly, that whosoever evades even the least of the seven hundred commandments embodied in the Holy Quran slams the door of salvation upon himself. The real and perfect paths of salvation have been opened by the Holy Quran. All others were only its shadows. Therefore you should study this Holy Scripture with the utmost attention and deepest thought, and you should love it as you have never loved anything else. For indeed, as God has conveyed to me, Al-Khayru Kulluhu Fil Quran. All good lies in the Quran. All kinds of good are to be found in it, and this is the truth. A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, welcome back to the breakfast show at the Voice of Islam Radio. So we will be starting with um, the first segment for today, <clears throat> which is a new blasphemy law, Danish government to propose criminalization of, of improper treatment of sig significant religious objects. Um, as this is, um, it's, it's an interesting topic, uh, and we'll, we'll we'll get to learn a lot. Um, if anybody wants to call in and and discuss with us, or wants to give us um, their point of view in regards to any of the any of these uh, segments, uh, the number is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK.
So the recent Quran burnings have uh, prompted Denmark to present a model intended to tackle the improper treatment of items of significant religious importance. A bill may be put forward to criminalize the act of burning the Quran and the Bible in public. But is it enough to tackle the problem of what some may call a violation of freedom of speech? So, um, the the uh, Daniel, unfortunately, the uh, desecration of the Holy Quran is not new. Mm. Um, so, what are some earlier incidents of this happening, uh, and what has has been the response? Um, so, regarding this, that uh, we see that um, the desecration of the Holy Quran is, as you have said, that is not a new phenomena. So, um, uh, notable incidents, uh, including the burning of the Holy Quran, uh, the one of the example is like by a, by a Florida um, um, person, uh, Terry Jones, in 2011. And the controversy surrounding the Danish newspaper, um, which uh, published uh, cartoons depicting the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in in 2005, um, and um, then again, surprisingly, a number of other cases of the desecration of the Holy Quran have have been seen in Muslim countries as well, such as Saudi Arabia and Bangladesh. Hmm. And uh, regarding the responses to this kind of ill act, um, we see that the response to such incidents uh, has varied. In some cases, it has led to protests, violence and international condemnation. Uh, many Muslim majority countries have you know, called for uh, much stronger measures to protect um, religious texts and sentiments. And... Um, often you know urging western governments to take action against uh, those who who are engaged uh, in such acts and um, you know here the question also rises that uh, then what are the boundaries of um, freedom of speech yeah. so you know and uh, a question which you know uh, naturally arises and it sees that um, that uh, we need to set boundaries of our freedom mm. you know it's not that like uh, everybody can do everything yeah so like you know as you can see that there's a traffic going on outside there are laws for that on red signal you have to stop on green you can you know carry on your journey so same goes for every other you know circle of life um, where you have to obey the laws and you can cannot go beyond that you know, otherwise you're gonna um, um, be uh, be in a situation where you're gonna hurt some other somebody, uh, somebody's you know health or somebody's uh, faculty, other mm. faculties. So bearing in that mind, bearing that in mind, uh, we should be um, uh, we should be such that um, you know. Uh, it reminds me of a hadith a saying of the Prophet Muhammad mm. that a Muslim is one from whose hands um, and actions the other person are being saved. Safe, yeah. So a very beautiful saying and uh, we should keep that in mind. And that's why in in retaliation, yeah. I mean, what has been, what have you seen, what has been 
the reaction of the Muslims after this. Um, I mean, you might have seen it on on social media. I saw that a lot of Muslim communities in Sweden went out and 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 started to distribute and show the Quran and recite the Quran in the streets of of, of Sweden. Mm-hmm. You know, what other kind of things do you think is possible, or what should the Muslim community or the the Muslim Ummah be doing um, in 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 this regard? I mean, your question is very genuine, and um, but. Uh, the answer could be kind of very mixed because uh, mm. the reactions I have seen personally are not the reaction that should be as I have you know uh, just mentioned the hadith as well and um, the, the reactions should be um, peaceful but as you know that um, the Muslim community always you know um, comes in, in the forefront and um, uh, you know uh, protest in the most peaceful way and yeah. um, by spreading the true uh, teachings of Islam and the true teachings of Islam is that um, uh, for example in in Holy Quran it says that um, if you have to fight fight in such a way and that the synagogues the churches the other place of worships are being protected that's the purpose and that's, and that's that can only be done in 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 one's defense so that's the whole purpose to protect the sanctity of uh, the place of worships. So um, I think we have a guest now. So I think we're gonna have our guest. Uh, um, so we have our f- um, first guest for today, um, yeah. the expert speaker in this in this topic. We have with us uh, Dr. Alison Scott Bowman. Uh, she is an academic at SOS University of London. She works on social justice issues, um, including in Islam in Britain and abroad. She and a team of young researchers, um, Hassan, Julia, Nina, Rana, Sanjana and student Halima, work in Westminster to bring expert evidence-based findings to the attention of MPs and peers and to hold policy-changing meetings in the Houses of Parliament. They work with expert lawyers, medics and think tanks, as well as university academics. Alison is also a wife, mum and granny and loves to paint and draw. Dr. Alison, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show at The Voice of Islam Radio. Can you can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, brilliant. Yes, so uh, good morning and nice to have you here at The Voice of Islam Radio this morning. Lovely to be here, thank you. Um, Dr. Allison, your research focuses on social justice and philosophy. How does this uh, proposed blasphemy law in Denmark uh, reflect broader discussions about balancing religious sensitivity and, and freedom of, of speech in society? Yes, thank you. That's, it's very worrying what's going on in Denmark and, and it's um, some similar trends in Sweden, but I'll just mention Denmark. Okay. Um, as I understand it, the Danes abolished their blasphemy law in 2017. They repealed it. Hmm. And what they're now planning is um, uh, to add to the section of their criminal code, they want to ban public insult of a foreign state or its flag or other symbol. So they're not... The burnings of the Quran, which are so shocking, they seem to be treating those as a... uh, related to terror threats, rather than related to Islamophobia, racial discrimination, or free speech issues. 
So this is, to my mind, it suggests that they're asking the wrong question. As a philosopher, I would say, really, this is about um, tolerance and citizenship and identity. Uh, by saying that it is about causing offence to a foreign state, they are ignoring the fact that there are about 300,000 Muslims living in Denmark mm. who need to be protected and looked after. So this seems to be a very worrying development and uh, it's intended, as I say, to reduce the risk of offending foreign powers and becoming a target for terrorism. This is the, what the Danish government argues, when in fact I would suggest that it's more to do with protecting your minority citizens. Indeed. Dr. Um, Alison, your your expertise extends to the philosophy of thinkers like uh, Rikia and Kant. How might their um, philosophical insights inform our understanding of the complexities surrounding religious symbols and um, freedom of speech? Yes, I mean, Kant is a very, a very important philosopher for, for thought, for, mm. uh, for world thought, um, but the fact remains that his basic premises were, were racist. I mean, he, he had two systems of thought, one the a priori, which is that we, we live on principles, we have principles by which we act, and then a posteriori was his idea that we then take those principles and apply them to specific aspects of our lives. Hmm. But the problem was that he excluded anybody who wasn't white from his set of principles, the a priori. So that means that he was only thinking about white people. So it's very, I'm a, I would continue to teach Kant, he's a brilliant thinker, but it is necessary to understand that his thinking while it forms the backdrop for much modern thought, is nevertheless um, discriminatory. And so that's, uh, that's quite shocking to many people, but it's very important because he, he, he differentiated between white people, black people, yellow people, and red people. Hmm. And he thought slavery was perfectly acceptable. So one, one of my, the aspects of my work is not to say that we should no platform Kant, but it is to say that we should understand that although there were people living at the same time as him who were tolerant, he certainly wasn't. And Recur also has a little bit of a blind spot about um, whiteness, if you like, as a privilege, um, which certainly suggests that uh, there are problems in many, many philosophical ideas. Mm. But Recur, on the other hand, is brilliant on dialectic, and we can use this to, to help us to counteract the right-wing populism that is dividing our societies, the idea that you're either for me or against me, this extremism like, you know, you either you want to leave Europe or you want to stay in Europe, you want to support trans or you want to um, block trans identity. So there are many different ways in which we're being forced in modern society to take up sides and then obviously there will be no possibility for agreement. And here recurs very interesting in his use of dialectic. This is a form of dialectic. He would argue that it's impossible to argue this way. You mustn't ever set up contrary ideas which have no possibility of agreeing. There must be some middle ground where we can talk and discuss. Yeah. So in terms of freedom of speech, um, we have to accept that it's possible to speak clearly to each other honorably and responsibly and not get 
reacting to these extreme events. Um, could you elaborate on the potential consequences of such legislation for the Muslim and, and Christian communities in Denmark and the wider implications for interfaith relations? So what's very interesting about the situation in um, Denmark at the moment is that it does reflect, uh, in a more extreme way, but it does reflect a lot of what European countries believe that they are fighting against, which is they think they are fighting against uncontrolled immigration. And this means that they fear immigration more than they, more than they fear being racist. And yet, Europe has, the European Union has actually tried to protect minorities. Very clearly, there is an EU treaty uh, ratified in 2008. And on Article 1, it says very clearly, Article 1, Item C, it says very clearly that uh, if a conduct is carried out in a manner likely to incite to violence or hatred against a group or a member of such a group, which is a moral group, then that should be deemed as racist and or xenophobic, and that should be against the law. So burning a Quran in a public place is, I would say, definitely comes into that category. So the European Union has already established in law to its satisfaction, and it's been agreed by the members of the European Union, all the states, that this is the way to behave. And yet Denmark is not paying attention to that because Denmark is saying, well, it's a matter of free speech. If you want to express yourself by burning some other faith's holy book, mm. then this is legitimate. And of course, uh, this is completely illegitimate because it is a shocking mm. and shameful uh, way to behave. So I think that the issue around the proposed changes in the law in Denmark Gosh, I can hear my voice echoing. I hope you hope you're not getting it on your, no, no, your end. No, no, it's um, all clear here. This good, good, good. Uh, this means that unfortunately, white privilege is being enshrined in law. Um, it is, for example, extremely difficult to become a citizen of Denmark. And the uh, Danish Institute for Human Rights has recently reported that 35% of young people born in Denmark are not citizens, and therefore they cannot vote. It's extremely difficult. It can take mm. about almost 20 years in Denmark to achieve citizenship. So we're seeing a situation where um, wider implications for interfaith relations are being damaged by a country where in 2019 and then also in 2021, it, it was becoming harder and harder to get to obtain Danish citizenship. Mm. And they were publicly asserting that uh, it was appropriate <clears throat> to, to deny citizenship to Muslims. <clears throat> so, excuse me. So this is um, a discriminatory act which is enshrined in their behaviour <clears throat> and in their law. And they, by attempting, by saying that they will they will refuse uh, acts like burning Qurans in future because that might offend foreign states, what they're ignoring is the state of mind and the safety of their own people. Uh, Dr. Allison, Denmark's uh, proposal raises questions about the, 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 the role of universities in fostering um, cosmopolitan citizenship. Uh, how can educational institutions uh, 
contribute to promoting respectful dialogue on uh, religious issues while upholding freedom of speech? I think uh, the role of universities is absolutely crucial in this, and yet uh, it's becoming difficult at the moment for universities in a country like Britain to use their influence to this effect. So the universities have become dragged into uh, this culture wars uh, where we're being told that if we try to decolonize the curriculum, then we are um, simply destroying everything that was great about the empire. And we're accused of being woke. Being woke means being alert to discrimination and trying to go against it, trying to change it. So it's very difficult for the universities to foster cross-upon citizenship. And yet it's absolutely crucial that we do so. And the work that I'm doing in Westminster with my young team of new researchers means that we are speaking truth to power in the corridors of power. And we are using individual power, our individual agency as, as members of a democracy to use democratic mechanisms in order to ask for justice and to ask that we are able to express ourselves as equal to those in power. So this is based on my belief that people learn best through first-hand experience and through listening well. My team represent Christian beliefs working together, representing their faith specifically, but understanding different Dr. Allison, sorry, you, you started to cut off there. Okay, uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you now. Okay, okay. So I don't know where, where did I begin to cut off? Um, I think it was just towards the end. Uh, we got your we got we got your um, your team that holds the beliefs of of Christians and and um, voicing the, the you know the voice of Islam as well. Uh, so we we've we've got that from you as well. So thank you very much, Dr. Alison Scott, uh, for joining us today, uh, for taking your time out and for being here with us um, to discuss and answer our uh, questions in 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 regards to this in this segment as well. Um, we you know we we pray uh, for you and for your team and in 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 all your future work as well. Thank you very much, Doctor. Thank you. I hope your day goes well. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That was Dr. Alison Scott Booman, um, an academic at South University of London. She works on social justice issues, including Islam in Britain and abroad. She and a team of young researchers, Hassan, Julia, Nina, Rana, Sanjana, and student Halima, work in Westminster to bring expert evidence-based findings to the attention of MPs and peers and to hold policy-changing meetings in the Houses of Parliament. They work with expert lawyers, medics and think tanks as well as university academics. Alison is also a wife, mum and granny and loves to paint and draw. Um, Daniel, in regards to um, the teachings of Islam, mm. um, could you shed some light for our, our dear listeners? Yeah, sure. As you know, as we were discussing also before our uh, guest as well, 
and you have you have asked that what were the reactions of the Muslim yeah. Mumbai as well. Yeah. And uh, you know, sitting here and speaking about this topic is is also a testimony that you know um, how to promote the peaceful teachings of Islam um, in response to um, such you know, heinous acts. Uh, I would say, and um, I think. Um, the root cause uh, if we discuss about the root cause uh, root cause uh, to tackle this cause i think we have to find the ground principles mm. and the ground principles for this are found in the holy quran uh, and one of the principles has uh, um, been mentioned before earlier that you know the the hadith i have mentioned that from a Muslim is one from whose hands and tongue um, the other people are being saved. Hmm. And the, I have found the other verse as well from the Holy Quran and says that insult not those uh, whom they worship beside Allah, lest they insult Allah wrongfully without knowledge. Clearly it says, states that uh, we shouldn't say anything bad or ill about other um, um, other idols, other people's idols. Um, you know, uh, they might you know um, attack us in the wrong uh, wrong way uh, without knowing. And uh, so you know, Islam teaches us a very beautiful teaching, and it also says that uh, come towards a, wor a word which is um, common between us and you. Mm. So it always, Islam always promotes uh, the best way to, you know, promote peace and unity. Well, we can also um, say that, you know, like the reason why, why you know, these kind of acts are ha happening in, in the world as well is that some people are ignorant or, or they lack education regarding the true teachings of Islam, yeah. right? Um, and then in regards to this, uh, His Holiness, the, the current uh, head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, he had a meeting with um, the national members of, of Sweden, of the Amdi Muslim community. And in regards to the burning of the Quran in, in, in Sweden in August 2020, uh, he said that the truth is that most people in Sweden and Western countries remain unaware of the true teachings of Islam. And this enables extremists to take individual verses of the Holy Quran completely out of context for their sake of, of their false propaganda. People who conduct such hateful acts have no knowledge of Islam or what the actual conditions laid down in the Holy Quran are for jihad. It is the duty of Ahmadi Muslims to introduce and exemplify the true and peaceful teachings of Islam in each and every city and town so that people understand the reality of our religion. So um, that is the, the, the you know the um, the words from his holiness himself mm. in regards to um, the burning of of the Qurans and that is what we as Ahmadi Muslims um, are taught and that's what we try to show um, in our social uh, gatherings from outside of the community with our friends our workplaces um, yeah. and it's only from there where we can create this awareness for people to understand that Islam is a loving religion. Islam is a religion of peace and integrity and um, that's where we need to move forward. I mean, you can, uh, everybody can promote um, such teachings in one's capacity and, um, you know, as we are doing, uh, using this platform 
to spread uh, the awareness about the peaceful teachings of Islam. So um, it is duty of um, each and every Muslim or MD Muslim to spread the right, uh, right teachings and true teachings of Islam. You know, so, the, so that, you know, we can educate people who are ignorant or are not aware of the of the real teachings of Islam because of some, uh, you know, uh, you can say so-called Muslims uh, from whose acts they might, um, you know, perceive the wrongful teachings of Islam. You know, Daniel, there are uh, more countries in which um, there are bills and, and laws uh, to protect religious items, mm. right? So just a couple of these uh, laws are that um, I know s several countries have, have, have laws in, in, in place to protect religious items, right? For example, um, Germany has, has laws against blasphemy and, and incitement to hatred against religious groups. Mm -hmm. um, there are some Muslim countries, um, majority countries in regards to desecration of the Holy Quran um, and it can result in severe penalties including imprisonment or even the death penalty. Uh, internationally there is no universal law uh, or treaty specifying um, you know, the protection of religious items but the United Nations has been called for respect for, for uh, religious freedom and tolerance so the issue is that you know we need the, the you know the challenge lies in in finding a balance mm. in between protecting religious sentiments and upholding freedom of speech um you know some uh, argue that education and awareness campaigns um may be more effective uh, than you know promoting um legislations um, but others, you know, contend that laws against hate speech and incitement can be sufficient mm. to address issues. I mean, you know, uh, in the end, uh, I would say that uh, it's uh, the freedom of speech that becomes a very huge issue. Um, uh, I'm, I mean, um, using this platform, we have, you know, um, uh, you know, discuss various topics um, and where freedom of speech comes in the end. And um, I think this is one of the things where we need to look at um, at uh, at our national level because it is becoming a very huge issue, um, which is you know disturbing um, the various circles of life um, among our society. We have a a small clip which is a, a let's say a Muslim's response to mm -hmm. those who harbor hatred in their hearts. Yes. So let's listen to this uh, short clip. Islam does not. Islam does not tell Muslims to limit kindness to their loved ones or fellow Muslims. On the contrary, the Holy Quran instructs Muslims to treat all people with justice, benevolence, and compassion. For instance, chapter 5, verse 9 of the Holy Quran enshrines a timeless and magnificent standard of truth and integrity. Allah the Almighty states, Let not a people enmity incite you to act otherwise than with justice. The verse goes on to state that be always just that is nearer to righteousness. This verse defines the standard of justice and advocated by uh, of justice, justice advocated by Islam, which requires that even if some, uh, someone has grievously mistreated or persecuted you, it must never lead you to seek revenge or be anything other than pro proportionate and fair in your response. 
That was um, an answer from from His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Ahmad, the current head of the Ahmadi Muslim community. Um, that was his response to those who harbor hatred in in in, in their hearts, uh, and that is what um, the answer from every Muslim should be. Dear listeners, that brings us to the end of segment one. Um, do join us after the eight o'clock news. So here is the eight o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Dear listeners, welcome back to the Breakfast Show at the Voice of Islam Radio. We are continuing with uh, segment two now, which is uh, well, we are starting segment two now, which is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. Um, if anybody would like to call in, the number is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. It is estimated that every ten children and young adults will receive every day ten children and young adults will receive a cancer diagnosis with varying long-term side effects. Two patients out of those ten diagnosed will not survive. This year, Childhood Cancer Awareness Month is celebrating 33 years of awareness. Um, Daniel, for the listeners, could you uh, kindly um, you know, let us know what are the types of childhood cancers um, and how do they affect children? So, um, childhood uh, cancer is a you know, very devastating yeah, diagnosis. It's, it's very hard. A lot of families go through it and... Yeah. Um, you know our prayers are with them, which is something that we we should always be doing for the for, for everybody in the world as well. Yeah, most certainly, and you no, know, it you know it not only affects the child but also their families as mm. well and the communities because you know they have a great affection with the child as well. Yes, it's, it's a natural phenomenon. So there are several types, different types of um, uh, childhood cancers, um, and each type can have a unique effect on children. So um, some of the examples uh, are like leukemia. Uh, it's the most common uh, type of childhood cancer. It affects the blood and bone marrow, uh, leading to problems with the production of healthy blood cells. Um, children with leukemia often experience symptoms like fatigue, um, frequent infections and easy bruising. Uh, treating, uh, treatment typically involves chemotherapy and sometimes uh, stem cell uh, transplantation. Mm. And uh, apart from leukemia, um, the other type is brain tumors. And uh, the example is such as medulloblastoma, and it can have a significant impact on child's uh, neurological function, um, depending on the tumor's location and size. Children may experience symptoms like headaches, uh, seizures, balance problems, and uh, cognitive impairments. Treatment may involve surgery, radioactive therapy, and uh, chemotherapy. The next type is uh, neuroblastoma, and uh, a cancer that affects the nervous system, often starting in the adrenal glands. It can lead to symptoms um, such as abdominal pain, uh, weight loss, uh, weight loss, and changes, uh, changes in blood pressure. Uh, treatment may include surgery, chemotherapy, uh, radiation therapy, and immunotherapy. And the last is like uh, Wilms tumor. 
Um, right now we have with us uh, our next guest for this segment and this is Professor Mike Hawkins. Um, he's a professor of epidemiology and director of the Center for Childhood Cancer Survivors Studies at the University of Birmingham. He has published over 150 papers in peer-reviewed scientific and clinical journals mostly relating to the long-term health and social consequences of being treated for cancer. Mike has received program grant funding from Cancer Research UK, the K Kendall Leukemia Fund and the European Commission. Uh, Professor Mike, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning and peace be on you. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for being here. So, Professor, what are some of the most common cancers um, that children may develop and how does it affect them? Okay. So, um, childhood cancer compared with uh, adult cancer is quite rare. There are about 1,800 uh, new cases each year in the UK. So, it's about five new diagnosis per day mm -hmm. in, in children. Um, that's compared with overall uh, uh, almost 400,000 new cases a year. So as a proportion, you can see. And the most common are um, leukemia uh, accounts for about a third of the cases. Mm -hmm. And after leukemia, the most common are brain uh, and spinal tumors, central nervous system tumors, which account for about a quarter. So those are the most common. And then there are lymphomas and there are embryonal tumors. Um, and uh, the, the sorts of treatment vary considerably depending on, on the cancer. If, if one takes uh, leukemia, mm -hmm. um, uh, it, the, the treatment for leukemia is, is quite long-term, takes many months or even years it, it, should the disease relapse. And um, whereas for, for solid cancers, it tends to be shorter. Um, so we talk about solid cancers we, and, and the sort of blood and, and lymphomas uh, we, we talk about as being non-sort non of solid cancers. And so the, it, the, the, the treatment varies considerably, but the mainstay treatments for childhood cancer are uh, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, and surgery. Although, you know, we may come on to, you know, there are more novel approaches that are being developed, um, you know, as, as we speak, actually. Mm -hmm. And, Professor, regarding children, you know, who have survived cancer, um, what has research shown regarding their long-term um, long health effect and uh, that of their offspring? Okay, okay. So, um, I suppose the important thing to say is that children with cancer is one of the great success stories of cancer treatment over the past 50 years. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, historically, um, very few kids diagnosed with cancer survived. And now, looking at the generality, um, over 80% survive, and the vast majority of them are cured. But sadly, 
there are side effects of treatment and essentially that's what I spent my career uh, mm-hmm. trying to get a handle on in the UK mm-hmm. uh, my, the, the work started off in Oxford some decades ago um, when we could see that the survival rates were improving uh, we set up a national cohort of all survivors of childhood cancer in England, Wales and Scotland and uh, I moved to Birmingham some years ago now to establish the British Childhood Cancer Survivor Study mm-hmm. and so we've been monitoring every child diagnosed with cancer in England, Wales and Scotland in the long term and in answer to your question, it's a mixture of good news and bad news. Um, maybe I'll start with the bad news, because there is good news. Mm. Um, it's it's throughout the world, you know, in the States, in Scandinavia, as well as ourselves in, in the UK, when one looks at... Um, what happens to people in the longer term when they've been treated for childhood cancer? Sadly, there is an, an excess of premature mortality. Mm. Um, and, and when we looked at that in some detail so a few years ago it, it, relating to the British survivors, we were asking the question, what, what accounts for... Uh, most of this excess mortality that the people previously treated with childhood cancer experience. Mm-hmm. And in 50% of those excess deaths were, were new cancers. Now, most of that, sadly, is caused by the treatments given to treat the original cancer. Mm-hmm. And it break, breaks down into t- two, two bits, in a way, in that the, 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 the drugs... Uh, the, the, the chemotherapy, the, the cytotoxic drugs, they could often, uh, well, not often, in a small proportion of, of individuals that are treated, that they can cause a, a leukemia. Yeah. Uh, the radiotherapy um, that's given to, 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 to treat some cancers, in a small proportion, in the longer term, that can give rise to a solid cancer, Unrelated to, to the, the childhood cancer, because we, 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 to give an example, um, ch- children that have uh, kidneys, uh, have a, a kidney cancer or a tumor in the abdominal pelvic region, often uh, those are treated with abdominal pelvic radiotherapy. So a radiotherapy machine is set up to, uh, mm-hmm. to, to, to put the radiotherapy into that area. When one follows those individuals up long term, it turns out that uh, a small proportion, but in excess of what you'd expect from the general population, develop um, bowel cancer. And when we looked at this in, in, in considerable detail for the British survivors, we found that the, the, the risk of these individuals that um, have been treated with abdominal pelvic radiotherapy was greater than the risk of that segment of the, the general population that have two first-degree relatives of bowel cancer. We've known for many decades mm-hmm. that, you know, bowel cancer can run in families. And if you have a first-degree relative, so a parent, a sibling, 
or uh, an offspring with, with, with bowel cancer, then uh, you're, you're at greater risk of getting a bowel cancer. And in fact, those individuals where there's a family history of bowel cancer get screened and off, offered colonoscopies. And this was brand new when we, came, when we discovered this excess risk. So what happens now is that they... Most clinicians now in the UK and throughout the world, actually, offer this group of patients colonoscopies from a from a quite an early age, uh, so that um, you know they're offered the same opportunity that the individuals that have got this this sort of genetic form of bowel cancer have. Um. That, uh, what, what, what I need to come on to, that, so that's the bad news. Uh, but what I should say in relationship to uh, these second cancers and, and the late effects of treatment, that's diminishing over time because of, as a result of the research that I do and people in North America, people th th throughout Europe are doing in Australasia, um, we're understanding these relationships, as I just described, you know, abdominal pelvic radiotherapy and then getting bowel cancer. So what's happening is that the doses of treatment are being reduced and refined. So uh, the doses are being reduced. We're getting more refined treatment methods like protein, proton beam radiotherapy. Mm -hmm. And when one looks over time uh, of people treated across decades those treated for childhood cancer in more recent decades their rate of, of of late side effects are much less than people say treated you know several decades ago so it's an improving picture over time and the other thing to say, the good news story here for survivors, and, and our researchers help contribute to this, is that when one's talking about outcome of pregnancy and the mm -hmm. health of offspring, for, uh, for it's unfortunate that, that you know some individuals become infertile, but quite a lot can, uh, are still fertile, and and those that have kids. The outcomes of pregnancy and the health of their offspring is quite similar to the general population. There's no real evidence, apart from small groups, um, for the generality, their, their chances of, of having a healthy kid are re re really similar to the general population. So whenever I speak to survivors groups, I always emphasize, you know, that, you know, the late effects that I described earlier, like the new cancers, those are coming down over time as we understand those risks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously a lot of the uh, survivors want to have a family of their own. And so that's really good news story that, um, you know, the outcome of pregnancy, the health of the offspring is no different to the general population. Um, I mean, doctor, you have, you know, really beautifully explained everything and enlightened us um, beautifully. And I, I, I mean, it's it's such a topic that you can speak at a great length. Um, and uh, uh, if you just uh, speak uh, just only on leukemia, uh, I mean, it's just a great uh, vast topic. So, yeah. you know, um, 
thank you very much uh, for being on the show and uh, it's uh, it's been an honor to have you on the show and a delight uh, for us and uh, thank you very much and peace be on you doctor professor uh, it's 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 a real pleasure to be here and thank you for the opportunity you know with childhood cancer awareness month to to highlight some of the stuff that you know in a, in a sense i started mm. this work some decades ago in oxford and it, it, it's been a life's journey for me actually trying to do understand as, as well as i can in in the uk you know these risks and and with a with with a view mm. to improving things for people that are diagnosed in the future Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you very much again uh, for being on the show. Uh, it's uh, and you know, it's been a delight uh, to have you on the show. Uh, thank you very much. Peace be on you. Th- thank you very much. Thank you very much. And bye bye. And that was Professor Mike Hawkins, uh, the professor of epidemiology and director of the Center for Childhood Cancer Survivors. And uh, uh, with this, um, you know, um, um, as you know, we know that Islam, uh, if we talk about Islam, hmm. Islam, uh, uh, you know, uh, from, we find different directives and profound directives uh, within uh, Islamic guideline. Uh, and Mumbai's, uh, do you have anything regarding Islamic website? I mean, just as a... Um a natural, a natural feeling towards humans and compassion is that we should help and provide, yeah. uh, you know, the vulnerable people, the needy people, and look after their health, you know, their, their, their welfare. Um, I mean, it's even hadith, it's the saying of the Holy Prophet of Islam that you should provide food and greet both those you know and those you do not know. Mm. Um, so basically to, to, to look after the needs of Allah's creation, uh, to fulfill the rights towards his creation. And as you have, you know, spoke about um, God Almighty and one of his attributes is um, Ashafi, the healer. Exactly. And uh, with this, you know, we have with us our next guest and uh, that is um, Dr. Adila Mahmood. Um, she is a counseling psychologist uh, who has worked in, in the mental health field for over 10 years, uh, her current role is in a children's mental health service. Unfortunately, uh, she has had her own personal experience with childhood uh, cancer as her 18-month-old nephew sadly passed away from cancer a few years ago. Uh, Dr. Dila Mahmood, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Uh, peace be on you. Assalamu alaikum. Good morning. Um, doctor, uh, in your um, 10 years of experience in the mental health field, have you seen a link between uh, poor mental health in children with cancer or other long-term you know, illness? Yeah, so my experience has been in um, local camp services, so <clears throat> it's not something that we see in local on, on, the, on the local level because there are specialist services that support people who have diagnosis with cancer and other long-term illnesses as well. So every hospital where there is off, being treat, off, uh, treatment being offered, there are psychology departments, um, and they, you know, they would have psychologist counselors there to support the families and the children affected by this. Um, having said that, there are 
um, some obvious mental health impacts that can come with a, with a diagnosis such as cancer. Um, and I would say that largely depends on things like, you know, the age of the child, you know, how old they are when they are, are receiving the diagnosis, what what kind of cancer it is, what kind of treatment they're going through. Um, you know, it can lead to things like anxiety over the years, um, you know, even after successful treatment. So even if they've been cured of cancer, there can, there can still be long-term implications on, on their mental health. Mm. There's obviously things like post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, depending on how old they are, if they're missing a lot of school, it can lead to isolation, difficulties going back into school and difficulties going back into education. But I would say it really affects, it affects everyone in a very different way. Mm-hmm. So it's really important yep, to certainly. try and make sense of how, you know, how it's affecting the child at that time. Mm. Um, doctor, as, as someone who has experienced uh, childhood cancer, uh, when your nephew sadly passed away, Uh, how did you and your family cope with this loss and uh, what advice would you give to your bereaved uh, parents and and families in such a challenging time and also you know in terms of um, what islam teaches us in terms of when someone passes away um, uh, how should you you know uh, deal with such kind of situation Yeah, so when um, my nephew was in treatment for seven months, so he was from the point of being diagnosed to the point where he passed away, it was about seven months. Um, And so one of the things that really helped us during that time where he was going through the treatment was obviously relying on, relying really heavily on prayers, Mm. um, you know, and giving subgard, you know, charity and doing all of those things. That that was really something that we relied on quite heavily. Uh, but I would say, you know, and even after he passed away, you know, we were sort of, we always took comfort in our faith, you know, knowing that everything happens for a reason and God knows best. So I think that's one of the things that really helped us. But I would say that really isn't any formula for, for overcoming something like this. And actually, I don't think you can ever overcome this, to be honest, because I think loss is different for everyone. And, you know, even now, it's been six years, his, it was his anniversary of the passing recently, and it's been six years, and I would say that actually we're still not over it. It's not something we ever get over. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a loss that you feel every single day, you know, you feel the absence of that person, you, know, you think about the milestones that they would have achieved by this age, um, you know, and what it would be like if they were still here. So I would say that the goal shouldn't be that you would overcome and move on from this from this loss because it will be with you all the time so I think it's it's more just sort of acceptance um, and knowing that everything happens mm. for a reason um, you know and just relying relying on what whatever helps that person on an individual level yeah certainly you know um, um, passing away once uh, there um, affects one someone uh, differently um, And obviously, you know, as a, as a Muslim, um, it says in the Holy Quran that uh, when someone passes away, uh, it should be like "Inna lillahi wa inna rajiun." That certainly we belong to Allah and to Him. We shall yeah. return. So these are the wordings with uh, which you know uh, we should uh, keep uh, in mind. And um, lastly, Doctor, uh, what can schools and um, institutions do to support and assist um, children with cancer? 
Um, I think, I mean, the main thing is that obviously research into treatments needs to be sort of optimised. Um, as, as far as I know, and I'm no expert in this, but as far as I know, that there aren't any different treatments for childhood cancers than there are for adult cancers. And so the treatment that children get is, you know, is very much the same as an adult would get. And obviously a child can only bear so much, so it can be quite harmful and there can be negative consequences. Mm -hmm. So I think firstly there needs to be more research into specific specific childhood cancers and what you know what can sort of um what can treat those um but i think other than that for someone who has been diagnosed and is going through it again it would depend on the age of the school of the child you know if they're in school if they're missing a lot of school um you know if they um you know how they can be maybe supported with making sure that they don't miss too much of their education because if if they do then obviously that implicates um, you know, that it has implications on their future and what they're able to do in the future as well if they don't have the education. Um, uh, and there are loads of charities available as well. And so usually mm. the hospitals have links with charities and they can provide things like financial support. They can provide practical support and emotional support as well. Um, but again, it would depend on what, you know, what the child needs and what their age is. Um, Dr. Adila Mahmoud, uh, thank you um, very much for being on the show, uh, for share and also for sharing your own own personal experience as well. And um, it's been a delight to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Okay. Assalamualaikum. Okay. Um, so that was Dr. Adila Mahmoud. Uh, she was she's a counseling psychologist who has worked in the mental health field for over ten years. Her current role is in children's mental health service. Um, unfortunately, uh, she had her. She has had her own personal experience with childhood cancer, as her 18-month-old nephew sadly passed away from cancer a few years ago. Um, with this, um, boys, um, do you have anything in regards to this topic? Um, we speak of, you know, um, um, from the Islamic perspective. I mean, um, there is a small um, clip which I would like the listeners to, to listen to and it's in regards to, um, you know, Allah rewards those who go through um, trials and suffering uh, and, and that will uh, kind of like um, give justice to what I had in mind to say as well. Yeah. Why do good people always, uh, not always suffer, but why is it that the, those who do good deeds uh, also are subjected to suffering, uh, Dr. Syed? Well, in my life I found the philosophy that there is no gain without pain. And I have found this to be so true in all aspects of, of my life. I'm speaking from a personal point. Um, whether it be sporting achievements or educational achievements or whatever it is, you have to put yourself to test. You have to put yourself through trials. You have to put yourself through tribulations. You have to work hard. You have to sweat. And only then will you gain something. And I think this is the philosophy behind suffering as well. And suffering is, is such a subjective subject anyway. What one person considers to be suffering may not be suffering for, for another person in any, in any case. But this is, this is what it is. The life that we live here is only a temporary life. And it is the life hereafter which is the eternal life. And that is what we are, that is the goal for our life in this respect. So our, our suffering or perceived suffering in this world will actually be rewarded by God Almighty. Um, even the pricking of a thorn, you know, 
the suffering that you get for that, Allah will actually reward you, bless you, forgive you your sins and, and so on. So the suffering aspect of our life actually is beneficial for us. We may not think so at the moment we are going through that suffering, but that is, that is the philosophy behind it and that is the reward and the blessing that we look forward to that Allah will actually transform that into our gain and that is of course what we hope to achieve. Dear listeners, um, and with that we come to the end of uh, segment two um, and now moving forward to segment three which is Typhoon Doxuri, what we can uh, uh, learn from it as well. So the, the um, destructive tropical cyclone that hit East Asia during typhoon season in July has become the costliest typhoon to hit China to date. Many have been left homeless and financially crippled. The rainfall brought about by the cyclone broke a 140-year-old Chinese record. So with so much destruction, what can we learn about these extreme weather events? So in regards to what the scale of, of um, you know, what the devastation was brought by um, this typhoon, according to the uh, Philippines National uh, Disaster Risk Reduction Manage Management Council, 2.4 million people were affected with 57,281 individuals displaced and seeking shelter and 763 active evacuation centers. Typhoon Doxuri was the was the costliest in China history in in Chinese history um, and the second costliest typhoon on record causing 15 billion dollars worth of damages. It was reported that 27 people had died as a result of the floods and 13 people were reported missing. Infrastructural damage in China was reported to be $65 million. Agricultural damage was put at $35 million. The impact on agricultural um, caused by the uh, typhoon has also caused some, some uh, food security issues in, in China. In Taiwan, the typhoon caused an estimated $12 million worth of damage to agriculture and infrastructure. On top of the initial economic costs brought about by the floods, millions of dollars were put into rescue efforts to find people trapped or those who were missing. So, um, in regards to this, Daniel, can you can you um, give some share some light uh, in regards to? What we can imagine from these um, from these kind of events in the world, and what we as Muslims uh, should 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 take. I mean, talking about such events, um, you know, just a few days ago we have also seen uh, a couple of other uh, natural disasters, like um, you know, flooding in the Libya and yeah. the earthquake uh, and in, in Morocco. Morocco well. Yeah, I mean, the flooding in Libya, um, according to the late, latest news, uh, more than 10,000 people have died. Mm. Such sad, a, a sad, sad and unfortunate event. And uh, same, you know, is situation is going happening in, in uh, Morocco as well. And also many um, people have, have been, you know, uh, been replaced. Um, uh, they don't know what to do in such a situation. 
and obviously um, the uh, the humanity first is also um, doing their job as well um, um, NGO or within the MDM Muslim community yeah, is helping yeah. uh, such people in uh, and obviously what we as individuals can do which we should remind our Muslim brothers our Ahmadi yeah. brothers and our brothers in humanity as well yeah. that you know whenever something like this happens we should first of all we should pray for those that are in that are in need mm. um, it's, it's the only thing that we can do which may benefit them as well and then there are other things then there are financial sacrifices yeah, um, but obviously at first you know we should pray for them we should pray, pray for the you know the easement of, of their troubles the worries um, you know so many people will be losing families so yeah. many people will be losing uh, will be losing their lives so we should we should pray for them that you know may Allah the Almighty may God Almighty uh, help them in, in, in these kind of um, uh, events and, and you know uh, show them mercy as well at the same time and then obviously then we've got the financial sacrifices in which there are other ways that we can help and um, we can we can um, we can help and, 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 and we should we should we should as much as we can I mean well. certainly um, uh, as it is the essence of Islam to pay the due rights of Allah God Almighty and to pay the due rights of your fellow human beings and with this we have uh, reached to our next guest um with us and our next guest is Dr. Joyce uh, Kimutaya. Um, he's a research associate at uh, Grantham Institute for Climate Change, Imperial College London. Um, her work uh, focuses on quantifying the role and contribution of <clears throat> anthropogenic uh, climate change on extreme weather and climate events. Um, uh, doctor, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning and peace be on you. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. Uh, pleasure having me on the show today. I'm um, looking forward to an interesting discussion. Yep. Uh, doctor, um, how is technology used to look at the patterns of uh, extreme weather events? Um, so first of all, to, to introduce the kind of work we do is that, um, uh, so I'm part of a group at the Grantham Institute of Cl for Climate Change in Imperial College London called the World Weather Attribution Consortium. And this is uh, a group of scientists across the globe that uh, look at extreme weather, weather events. And particularly, they want to understand uh, what is the role of climate change in, in extreme weather that happens across, across the planet. So what we use um, in the understanding of patterns of extreme weather, we, uh, we would use state-of-the-art uh, climate models. And uh, basically, climate models are numerical uh, tools that are used to simulate the atmosphere, so the state of the climate. So what we do is we want to understand how uh, changes in the intensities or the frequencies of extreme events uh, are now in relation to when there was little influence on uh, human influence on the climate. Uh, Dr. Joyce, oh, while cases um, of extreme weather events uh, are normal, there's no doubt that humans have uh, contributed to climate change. Uh, what have you found based on your work on the, on the contribution of uh, anthropogenic uh, climate change on extreme weather such as, as floods? 
Um, so the first thing that's important to understand is um, when when the climate warms, or like now because we have a slightly warmer climate compared to 1850s when humans have not started uh, industrial revolution, is that um, a warmer climate holds more water. So they tend to hold more water when, when the temperatures rise. And so in that case, you find that the, the risk of extreme rainfall uh, goes really high. So the chances of receiving very high rainfall is, is, has become quite high in the current climate. And it's uh, attributable to anthropogenic climate change. And that is the same case for, uh, for extremes like heat waves and droughts. So there is a lot of uh, evapotranspiration on, on, the, um, on the atmosphere mm-hmm. and from the soil. So you find that the soils are quite dry. And that's why you find that some regions are experiencing floods while some regions are experiencing drought. But it's really because of these changes and the warming of the planet. Um, Doctor, speaking of you know natural disasters, as we are seeing also, we heard the news of the earthquakes in Morocco and the devastating floods in Libya. Uh, do you think are we seeing the progress in, in how we are tackling issues such as um, the climate change, I mean, and the better planning for disasters in infrastructure, technology? I, I, I think there is a progress that has been made, and we, 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 we <clears throat> don't want to undermine that, but we want to say that the progress has been quite slow, mm-hmm. and I think there is, there is little concerted effort in how that uh, progress is, is, is going. And at the moment, so there is this uh, 1.5 goal that we gave ourselves as the Paris Agreement. So uh, all the countries in the world, most of the countries in the world agreed that we would work together to limit our warming, uh, warming of our planet to uh, 1.5 degrees. Mm-hmm. And mainly by that is we need to prioritize emissions reduction. So we don't want to continuously emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere because it's continually heating our planet. So, but now the likelihood of warming uh, exceeding that 1.5 is alarmingly high and continues to rise. Um, so, I mean, we should put more effort to address escalating risks of, of climate change, and particularly for uh, those impacting vulnerable communities. And because now you see that it's actually the vulnerable communities that are impacted disappropriately. Um, in, in when extreme events occur, mm-hmm. and additionally to that, it's really difficult for them to rea- to, to to respond to such because it it becomes quite costly because the impacts are huge, and so um, it's really difficult to respond to this. You can you could see the case in Libya that it's really been a difficult yeah. uh, time for them to respond to the situation. Also, the, the case in Morocco, although we, we, we have not done a study to show if the, if the earthquakes are related to climate change, mm. but, but, but similarly, it's just speaking to the level of response that vulnerable countries are not um, are, 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 are being subjected right now. Yeah. But if you look at in Libya, we can see the devastating effects of um, uh, due to climate change. Uh, it's the flooding, you know, uh, that came in Libya. But we, we didn't see any, you know, better planning for such disasters in Libya. 
Um, anyway, Dr. Joyce uh, Kimitai, uh, it's been a delight to have you on the show. Um, and thank you for very much for sharing your your thoughts uh, and your experience on this topic. Um, thank you very much. Uh, peace be on you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Um, that was Dr. Joyce Kimutai. Um, she's a research associate at Grantham Institute for Climate Change, uh, Imperial College London. Her work focuses on quantifying the role and contribution of anthropogenic uh, climate change. And with this, next we have with us, uh, uh, we have the pre-recording of uh, one of the members of Humanity First, Nasser Amini, uh, he lives in Canada and works as a data analyst. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Peace be upon you all. And welcome back to the Brexit show. Today we have with us brother Nasser Amini, who lives in Canada and works as a data analyst. He has served with Humanity First since the Aquila earthquakes in 2016 and worked as an assessment manager for the Humanity First International Disaster Relief Team. Assalamu alaikum, uh, Brother Nasser, how are you first of all today? Wa alaikum assalam, I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for having me. Zakla for joining us today. Brother Nasser, can I ask you, um, what is Humanity First stand for for our new listeners today? Humanity First um, uh, is a, an international NGO. You ask what it stands for. Um, I mean, uh, Humanity First. So I, I would say our motto is to serve mankind, serve um, anybody and everybody without any discrimination of uh, race and creed, and uh, putting the needs of others uh, before us. Perfect. Zakla, Brother Nasser. So my first question um, today uh, for you is, what is, um, you know, Humanity First is often at the forefront of providing aid to countries that have been hit with natural disasters. What has been the purpose of Humanity First with regards um, to natural disasters such as floods and hurricanes? Yeah, so Humanity First um, has been uh, responding to natural disasters for a very long time now, and by Indeed. the grace of Allah, uh, Humanity First has now a very experienced group of volunteers who work as a team, and you know they're assigned roles and responsibilities. Uh, and similarly, the humanitarian sector has come a long way and developed systems and means for the different agencies to be able to communicate with each other. And as a member of uh, the GDAX, which is a global disaster alert and coordination system, <clears throat> You know, Humanity First is made aware of any incident that occurs uh, in the form of a text message to all our team members. And so we can start monitoring pretty much immediately. And this system, this portal also allows for all the different agencies and NGOs to be able to report back and share whatever news or information or reports that they've collected. Mm -hmm. And I think the, um, Humanity First is uh, quite unique and leading in the aspect of assessment. Because while the other NGOs, you know, they're contemplating on putting teams together and setting uh, itineraries, booking flights, accommodation, and by the time the teams arrive, they're 
mobilized and they go out and physically carry out assessment and compile that report and send them back. Mm-hmm. And it's talking about number of days and weeks have gone by. Um, whereas Humanity First has a huge um, kind of um, uh, an advantage um, because it's able to tap into members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community um, and through the auxiliaries, uh, the youth organization, it can um, activate and engage volunteers and volunteer, a volunteer base that's global. And those volunteers can be activated pretty much immediately. Uh, and they're using their local ground knowledge and um, being able to communicate more easily uh, and, 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 you know, knowing uh, the land, you know, they can get out to the places that are most effective and carry out that assessment without Indeed. any communication issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. so uh, it allows us to kind of get that assessment done very quickly. And then once we get that back, we're able to verify that with news channels or other reports that we're seeing as well. And we, we know we can share that with the other agencies on, on the portal. And that is hugely beneficial to everybody then. And and I think that's a huge strong point that Humanity First has. Um, and again, using those local volunteers, once we understand the needs, uh, you know, we're able to deliver on those needs a lot quicker. Perhaps using, um, you know, purchasing locally, using again uh, their knowledge, transportation, and just being able to just being being able to provide the funds to carry out um, that delivery. Indeed, and you know, Brother Nasser, the Many volunteers they just share um, a vast amount of time, be it uh, be it through obviously time itself, financially, or um, being at that very stage and helping out where the disaster has struck. Like yourself, um, as a humanity um, first member and a worker, what has been your experience mm-hmm. with aiding people um, who have been affected by natural disasters, and how has this impacted you? Well. You know, it always feels nice to help anybody and everybody. Uh, but honestly, um, it's been immensely humbling for me. Um, I think it's changed my perspective to life in many ways. Um, I feel living in the West, we take too many things for granted. Um, mm-hmm. We kind of sometimes um, um, you know, spend too much time concerning and worrying about trivial matters. Um, an incident comes to mind... Um, when you asked this question, and um, we went to a medical camp, and we'd already gone with the intention to distribute, you know, some chocolate bars to the children there. So we'd taken um, a few bags, and as we were distributing the chocolates, um, you know, the the look of joy on their faces and the gratitude in their eyes, um, you know, that was something. But their desire to ensure that every child. <laughs> was given a chocolate bar, nobody was left out and pointing out to the children at the back of the of the of the of the uh, the crowd yeah. was um, something that really struck me that despite you know they some of them not even having basic nutritional uh, needs being fulfilled when they've been given something like a chocolate bar you know their, their desire still to share that really stuck with me um, um, I don't know if it's fair to say, but sometimes we don't see these kind of characteristics in children closer to home. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, that, that had an impact on me. And I'm also recalling another incident 
when we went to do a, a medical camp in a very remote village in Guinea uh, Conakry, it was. And we set up a medical camp uh, early morning, straight after dawn. And we we worked throughout the whole day, late into the night, and we seen like over 300 patients. And you know, quite impressed with ourselves. We sat down to have a nice hot meal. And it was while we were eating that we were told that the food, the chicken that we were eating, had been presented to us by a couple of the families from the village. And, you know, these, these people in these remote villages, they probably only have like uh, four or five chickens to their name, and that's what they're going to survive on for the whole year. And for them to offer that to us, to ensure that we are given, you know, the highest level of hospitality, um, um, you know, and, and then not knowing how they were perhaps going to get the next meal, it really humbles you. It makes you realize that, you know, um, we go out there to do something good, to, to, to have a good feel uh, for ourselves. But really, these people mm-hmm. living in such circumstances, you know, uh, they're able to make such huge sacrifices. So, um, it, you know, you, it, I think every person is affected in different ways. Uh, but that's just, uh, you know, the couple of things that, that impacted me. Uh, but I also have to say that, you know, while, while we're out there, um, usually we're being overlooked by our team uh, from base camp and they're monitoring everything, you know, where we are, who are we with, uh, ensuring that all our needs are fulfilled, perhaps, you know, making uh, meetings uh, to ensure that, you know, the time that we're spending there is being fully um, utilized. And then we're also accompanied by local volunteers. So what I'm trying to say is that we're, we're surrounded and we're very comfortable and, and a time goes by very quick. It's only when you actually have a few moments alone, perhaps when you're on that plane flying back, where it hits you, you have time to reflect on what you've just witnessed. And then as you're coming back to your normal life over the next two, three weeks, you know, you go through a bit of a transitional period where you're trying to come to terms to dealing with those trivial issues that, that we have in our lives. Yes. Indeed. That's uh, Brother Nasser, you know, um, where you mentioned about the children's sacrifices about sharing their chocolates. That's why it's called Humanity First. They don't care about who is next in, but they were just happy to share what they have been given to the first uh, loved ones or the children around themselves. That's why it's called Humanity First. So uh, my last question before I let you go today, um, what kind of projects does Humanity First have in order to help and stabilize individuals that have been affected by natural disasters? Um, Humanity First has a number of different projects uh, running throughout the year, throughout the, the world, sorry. And every project is quite unique based on, you know, what the needs are of um, the people there. Um, but in general, for disaster-stricken um, countries, um, there's emergency survival kits that can be provided, and this, this, this comes in like in a box and can be sufficient for a family of four or five to kind of, you know, just start from beginning if they've lost their whole house. Mm-hmm. Um, it has all the basic uh, utensils, uh, some basic tools in there. Um, so, yeah, that's one of the things that we look to provide. We have a partnership with the Rotary Club, um, and they trust us to be able to, you know, take their... Uh, aid and, and deliver it um, on the ground. 
Then there's water filtration kits. Water is uh, something very essential. And Indeed. Sometimes, you know, yeah, uh, something as basic as that could be life-changing. Uh, tents is something that Humanity First has provided, does provide. Uh, emergency food supplies, usually one of the first things that we will look to offer. And then um, for longer periods, it's hot meals where a kitchen would be set up and hot meals can be provided, or, you know, a number of meals throughout the day. Um, then long-term things are such as school in a bag, which is like a bit of a rucksack with basic uh, stationery and other equipment that children may need um, for school. Um, and then uh, as and when camps are set up, we will look to coordinate with the camp managers and, uh, and you know, take on some long-term projects within the camp <clears throat> and just contribute there. But, um, you know, I'd like to say that all these things that, that we've just mentioned here, they're not any different to what other organizations and NGOs can and do offer. But I mm -hmm. think the advantage that we really have is the guidance that we receive from uh, the head of the Ambia Muslim community, His Holiness, Ahmed, and something that I've already mentioned, uh, the vast global volunteer base that we have uh, available to us through the Ambia Muslim community. Um, you know, these volunteers work selflessly and they give us an edge in terms of being able to get to the ground quicker and, you know, being able to get a lot more for uh, value for money. Um, and so all the donations that I'm going to first receive are used very, very effectively. And similarly, um, each and every disaster that Humanity First serves on kind of leaves behind an, uh, an experienced group of individuals who can be even more effective. Um, and if there's a disaster in the future, you know, they can be more self-sustainable and less reliant on external agencies. I hope and pray that we can learn more from 21st and when any, anywhere disaster starts, all the volunteers who go out there, they are also safe and come back um, 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 also. Zakla for joining us today um, and hopefully we'll see you again next time. Thank you so much. Uh, much appreciated and uh, God bless you. Zakla. In response to um, a question on climate change and, and how it can be tackled. Um, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, the current head, the fifth head of the Ahmadiyya, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community said, climate change is a problem everywhere, all across the world, especially in the third world countries where the population is increasing. Just to accommodate the increased population, nations are developing new residential areas. And because of this, forests are being cut and this deforestation is, is a major cause of climate change. So you have to be very particular that whenever one tree is cut, two trees should be planted in return. Continuing, His Holiness said, fuel consumption should also be reduced. Now people have become so lazy that if they want to go from one place to the other place, and the distance is only 100 yards or 200 yards, instead of walking to the place, they use their motorbike or car. In this way, pollution is increasing. There are so many other factors which are also causing pollution and climate change. So we should be very careful, although we cannot say that because of the fear of climate change, we should not have children. 
Um, His Holiness went on to explain that human beings should do should do all that is in their capacity to combat climate change and change their ways for the sake of the future of the human race. Dear listeners, um, you know, it's a reminder to us all that we should be all be uh, playing our part uh, in looking after this world. And, you know, we pray that may Allah the Almighty uh, enable us all to 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 do this uh, and 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 enable enable us to look after our, our our world as well, and we should pray for all those in need in all various disasters that are happening around the world. This brings us to the end of today's breakfast show. I would like to thank our listeners, our experts for taking the time out, our producer Isha Ahmed, and the researchers Anusha, Ariba, and Sara, and I would like to thank um, our tech team. Uh, Asadullah and Daniel as well. Thank you very much.